Universal design is the design of technology to be usable by everybody to the greatest extent possible without the need for adaptation or specialized design. I'm Anthony Giannoumis. I'm an associate professor of universal design at the University of Applied Sciences here in Oslo, Norway. And I'm Dasha Krivenos, and I'm a second year computer science student. And today on the podcast, we have some universal design news, right? Yes, indeed we do. And uh, we have a really cool research article about universal design uh, gaming. And so we'll review that article in the second half of the show. But to start us off, Dasha? Yeah. So uh, something that's uh, relatively, I think, interesting in the field of um, universal design and accessibility is that wearables are becoming more and more prevalent for um, as accessibility tools. So they're not just something mm -hmm. that's kind of cool on your wrist, you know, they're not just, you know, like an iWatch or something like that. And one that was kind of um, featured by Wired was Area. Okay. Uh, it's a really cool concept uh, where it's it's almost like um, Uber, but for uh, people who are blind or partially sighted, it, except without cars at all. Um, <laughs> it's to do with um, things that cannot be read by a screen reader or uh, turned into Braille, for example, instructions or a handwritten note. It gives you uh, it gives the user a pair of glasses and connects them with uh, people who they call agents, and those agents can read what they see in front of them or explain what they see in front of them and uh, which helps the user obviously go on about their day and kind of function in a society that may not be all the way accessible, you know what I mean? Sure, sure. I yeah. think for people with visual impairments this could really uh, it could be the means for inclusion on a very, very broad scale because you're not so dependent now on you're not tethered to your computer or anything like yeah. that. You can literally approach any environment, a movie theater, if you want to get movie yeah. tickets and you want to check what row you're on. Uh, a grocery store, even, you know, that's something so basic that we, people who are sighted, uh, take for granted, I feel, because mm -hmm. when you're at the grocery store and you want to get something, how do you... Do you know where that is? Do you know yeah. what shelf it's on and what you're actually getting? There's so many different brands that you know. Uh, and this uh, it's a subscription service at the moment uh, so that you're connected to a real live person that basically um, gets paid you know, by the hour to do these things. But in the future, obviously, they say that uh, it would be more sustainable and more uh, plausible for this to be AI, which is another sort of way for this to go. And uh, it's really interesting because I feel like... Uh, people don't always want to be connected to others, you know what I mean? They, they want independence, and that independence will come a lot easier if it's, you know, an AI basically telling you, this is what this says, you know, there's no bias. Sure, sure. Mm. It provides a lot more autonomy because yeah. it's uh, it allows a user to experience uh, the world on their own terms, and that's really, really, uh, it's an amazing idea, yeah. it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I love the idea of bridging kind of artificial intelligence and product design and yeah. software engineering and being able to really uh, catalyze something that is truly, uh, well, maybe not universal in the use, but at least usable for a population that tends to get left out of the uh, kind of mainstream commercial technology development. Uh, so this is a great opportunity to uh, really provide an, a form of assistive technology that, as you said, is also wearable. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how the idea kind of came about was from, you know, Google Glass, you know, that's sure. obviously the thing. But um, Google Glass did not, you know, become as popular as they would have hoped it would. But this is uh, proving to be 
pretty popular, and uh, people who are blind or partially sighted say that it's changed, you know, a lot of the things that they do on the daily, you know, like, for example, the one example that was given here in the article was um, uh, he was able to put together an IKEA, piece of IKEA furniture using the instructions that came along with it, and, you know, we all know sort of what the instructions look like sure. for an, a piece of IKEA furniture, and uh, I am fully sighted, and yet I still have a hard time with that, <laughs> so it's this really, it's this next level of, of um, accessibility that uh, I hope is um, uh, successful in the future, definitely. Well, I'll tell you what, if, if an AI system could tell me how to put together uh, <laughs> IKEA furniture, I would be really grateful for I that. I wish, yes, <laughs> honestly. I'm going to subscribe to this just for that aspect of it. That's yeah. awesome. That's amazing. You said it was ARIA? Was it what it was uh, called? Yeah, it's called A-I-R-A, ARIA, okay. ARIA maybe. I-R-A. Um, okay. Yeah. And it was actually developed by a person who has been blind from birth. Okay. Uh, and it's it's really, really interesting, and I, I'm quite awesome. excited about it. Did they say where it was developed, what country? Uh, it was developed in the States, but uh, I think they're trying to sort of broaden their reach and uh, reach as many people as possible from around the world. But the thing is, because it is a subscription service that is based on real people, yeah. you know, that link needs to be set up before anything else happens, you know, that, yeah. So it sounds like right now it's just available in English. Yes. Uh, but hopefully with the addition of some AI, and I, I hate to put AI in as this kind of, uh, you know, ex machina kind of yeah. fixes everything, but uh, it should hopefully be able to fix the language issue as well, so mm-hmm. that way it becomes universally accessible in the sense that it's not only for people who are English-speaking, but people who speak uh, almost any language. Yeah, and more cost-effective as well because, you know, yeah, it, AI makes things a lot easier in that regard as well. And so then it's scalable to communities that may not be able to afford a standalone piece of assistive technology that that costs quite a bit of money per month. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really exciting. That is amazing. Yes. What else you got for us? Well, well, well. Um, this is something to do with Apple, and uh, Apple is actually working with uh, hearing aid firms that mm-hmm. will directly connect to iPhones with free licensing because. This, in the past, has been um, an issue where uh, there's been licensing and driver issues with both iPhones and, in general, like Apple technology okay. and hearing aids. So and now there's going to be a bit less of an issue with um, these things. And a lot of people sort of also take this for granted because they assume, you know, all technology is very interchangeable, backwards compatible. And we know that that is not the case, you know. Uh, and this has been a, a pretty big um, step forward because these companies have been kind of reluctant to change their views on, you know, connectivity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have a lot of old, um, older um software that they use, but now they're trying to make it more accessible and more connectable with different uh, iPhone and uh, Apple products. It's it's quite interesting. So let me see if I got this straight. So Apple's basically entered into an agreement with different hearing aid manufacturers to make sure Mm -hmm. that their technology is compatible with those hearing aids? Yeah, it's more compatible and it's more, they're trying to make it so it's more open. Okay. You know, so... uh, not open in the sense that uh, everybody can use it, so it's not open source, but it definitely is more open if you've got an iPhone or a Mac or things like that. It, it becomes a lot more compatible and easier to set up and easier to connect. So Okay. That's really interesting. I do some work with the World Health Organization and uh, around safe listening because with the advent of these in-ear earbud uh, headphones and the, uh, mm. the desire to listen to music at... Uh, 
well, da- potentially damaging levels. Yeah. Uh, the concern from the WHO is that we're actually heading into an epidemic of early hearing loss. So it's good that we're, for the future generations that may be suffering from this or may be experiencing hearing loss, uh, that they have an opportunity now to continue to use the software that they're used to using, the devices that they're used to using, yeah. Apple devices, and um, and still be able to uh, have a, a, an enjoyable experience. Yeah, and one of the biggest issues for at least for the manufacturers was the licensing fee was very okay. high, you know, so because Apple is Apple. Yeah. <laughs> and um, now they're doing it for free, mm. which makes it a lot more open, a lot more easy, and people are, you know, jumping on that wagon a lot more readily because they see, you know, you're, there's only things to win. There's nothing to lose in this regard. That's absolutely so, brilliant. Bravo yeah. to Apple, then. Bravo, yeah. I mean, you rarely hear good things about Apple, but <laughs> <laughs> this is a great thing about Apple, at least. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Uh, and then I uh, had something about the fact that this is actually something I wanted to ask you. Of course. Right. So uh, the WCAGs, they're... Yes. Uh, should we explain what the WCAGs are? Yeah, I think that would be best. So <laughs> WCAG stands for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, and these are a series of industry standards that were developed okay. by the World Wide Web Consortium, specifically their Web Accessibility Initiative Group. And they're basically a set of guidelines for web developers to use to ensure that, to a certain extent, their products are accessible, uh, their web products, their web uh, applications, and their websites are accessible for people with disabilities. Mm. And the reason why I'm asking this is because um, I saw this news story, which kind of was interesting to me, because uh, they're talking about the first British standard to outline a framework of web accessibility when designing or commissioning web products. Really? Did they state which standard they were talking about? The BS8878. Okay, so yes, this isn't new news, but uh, it's nice that it came back up in the news. So the British standard 8878 is what's called a a process standard. It means that it's not a standard for the output of technology, it's a standard for ensuring that the technology will be as accessible as possible. Okay. And this is specifically in relationship to the web. And so some of the criteria for BS8878 is, um, oh, to have an accessibility policy, right? So that's yeah. a process mm. that an organization would have to go through to say, we are trying to adhere to these standards for accessibility. We try to ensure that our technologies are accessible to these assistive technologies or compatible with these assistive technologies and that sort of thing. So it's not in the same sense that the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG, are really oriented towards the output, the website yeah. itself. Mm-hmm. The BS8878 is a brilliant standard because it's focused specifically on the organization and organizational processes. Okay. So I'm really glad you brought it up because I think this is a really brilliant way forward for yeah. accessibility. I was just reading and it kind of uh, threw me off a little bit because like, uh, I know about WCAGs, uh, but I didn't know about this and it definitely is really interesting. And it's, yeah, it's back in the news because um, I'm they're uh, adding to it and they're sort of pushing it forward and making it more accessible, more. They're trying to sort of, oh, quote unquote, advertise it okay. and sort of bring it up into the public eye more. So that's what's going on. And I was really surprised, but it's really interesting. That's wonderful. And we're helping to raise that awareness as well. Yeah. That's really fantastic, uh, not only for the, the reasons that I mentioned, but uh, the folks that went that contributed to uh, British Standard 8878 uh, were uh, were principally people with disabilities. Mm. So it was really fantastic that uh, the, uh, the person who led um, 
kind of the original standard, uh, the standard that came out before BS8878 was a person with a disability, and they had uh, substantial con contributions, I believe, from the Royal uh, National Institute for the Blind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I may have, uh, I know it's RNIB, I know their initials are RNIB, but I can't remember off the top of my head what exactly that stands mm -hmm. for, but it's something along those lines. Royal National Institute uh, for Blind People or something along those. Mm -hmm. The blind and partially sighted, yes. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, yeah, so that's a really great opportunity that uh, people, that, uh, that the British Standard Institution took to ensure that people with disabilities were involved in the development of the standard. Mm. And this is really revolutionary in a lot of respects because it's, it's one thing to create a policy or to create a standard that says, okay, we're going to try to ensure accessibility. It's an entirely other thing if you're trying to involve people whom that standard affects directly yeah. in the process of creating those standards. And that's something really revolutionary that happened with BS8878. And uh, I believe it, it was also, there was a substantial contribution from people with disabilities to WCAG as well. So I think uh, this way forward in, in future standardization efforts, whether it's accessibility or any products or services that affect people with disabilities, uh, in my opinion, should absolutely mandate mm. uh, the, the, the involvement, the substantive involvement of people with disabilities. It feels so obvious, you know, uh, but... It, to us, it is, yeah. yes. Yeah, but policymakers and uh, people in general may not see the connection as easily. But it's definitely a great step, and it, it, I feel like it is the only way to sort of uh, create anything for people with any sort of disabilities is to involve those people because otherwise there's a huge disconnect, and then, you know, you're kind of just doing it for yourself almost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's a principal component of things like user-centered design and co-design, and uh, I know these are going to be things we talk about in the future, so I'm not going <laughs> to dive down this rabbit hole yet, not in our first episode. But, um, yeah, I think that having uh, uh, people with disabilities and, and the broadest possible stakeholders involved in creating, whether it's a piece of technology or a policy itself, is absolutely essential for ensuring that uh, not only it'll be adopted, but also that it's maximizing usability. All right. So that's interesting for me. I learned something today. Awesome. Yeah, because this was uh, something new for me. So that's about it on the, the front of it, uh, accessibility news okay. and tech news in general. So for our academic article, what we have is an article from the, uh, from the journal Universal Access in the Information Society, which is pretty well the premier journal when it comes to universal design. I mean, this journal covers just about every aspect of universal design from the technology itself up to the policy level and probably uh, anything in between. Uh, the article is in the most recent volume, which is volume 16, and it's titled Designing Video Games for the Blind, Results of an Empirical Study, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant. That's because, amazing. Like, right? even the title, that really pulls you in and you go, tell me more, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was written by a series of authors at Towson University, mm -hmm. and uh, Towson is uh, uh, the home place, the home workplace of one of our very dear colleagues, uh, a guy named Jonathan Lazar, mm -hmm. who works with our university quite a bit and works with our research as well. And so they're once again producing amazing research. Um, I'm going to try to go through this article in relative detail just because I kind of geeked out on it a little bit, but uh, I hope that uh, it'll also be interesting I'm for you sure as well. I'm sure it will be, yeah, I'm ready. So they really focus specifically on people with visual impairments, which uh, I think is also a really great opportunity in gaming to find ways of creating more universal access. 
Uh, they focus specifically on trying to develop some non-functional requirements, or kind of some guidelines for non-functional requirements. And non-functional requirements are kind of a, a different animal from what we would normally consider as the function or behavior of a piece of technology. Non-functional requirements really kind of look at almost system level architecture kind of things. Um, yeah, so they're really looking at operational criteria, not so much functions and behaviors of systems. Uh, their methods or their the results that they drew from were qualitative. So they did some interviews with, uh, let me see here, I think six, yes, yeah, six visually impaired uh, people who identified as gamers. Mm -hmm. And they did some interviews beforehand, they did some interviews after. They tried to play a game that they recreated from the 1980s. So they took this game and uh, it's called Cactus Something, and they uh, recreated it for the for the PC. And they uh, did some interviews before. They had the people play it, and then they did some interviews after, which is kind of a great uh, way of uh, of g gathering some data. Yeah, sounds really fun as well for the participants. You know, they're not right? sitting around in a room and just answering questions. They're having fun. Yeah. It's not just hey, what did you think of this, or what did you, how would you do this? Yeah. All right, so they're, uh, they're basically, their premise of the article is that video games have largely, or video game developers have largely neglected people with disabilities, specifically people with visual impairments. Uh, but, and so because of that, people with visual impairments had kind of had to kind of hack a whole bunch of different tools to mm. make it work, make the games work for them and for, for what they wanted to do. Mm. Uh, this can range anywhere from uh, just getting really big speakers, loud speakers, so mm -hmm. a person with a hearing impairment can hear the, the game cues, uh, down to using screen readers on games. And so I didn't even know this was possible until yeah. I read this article, so I think it's a really brilliant way of, uh, of being able to make games accessible. Um, Yes, so the real challenge was then to extrapolate some sort of guidelines for further software development for gaming. So the game was called Ninja Cactus, and I've never heard of this game before. Neither have I. Okay, so this was apparently a game in the 1980s, and again, they recreated it. Uh, they recreated all the elements, so it has like in-game sounds and movements, they have character movements and uh, kind of reward systems, and basically a player must uh, kind of survive and overcome a series of obstacles, and they can use different fighting moves like punching and kicking and that sort of thing. Mm. So kind of a relatively complex game. I mean, for someone who has a visual impairment, there's a lot of things, a lot of input that would need to have to happen non-visually. Mm. Uh, for a person with uh, who is sighted, uh, the experience is probably... Well, it's very, very different. Uh, so it says that the, the article says that the game was not specifically designed to investigate accessibility. It was just a, a game. So they're just taking a kind of a, an everyday consumer level game. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, six participants went on and, and tried to play the game. They used a really unique way of, uh, of developing these guidelines called grounded theory, which is, I'm a huge fan of grounded theory. It's a way of taking data and extrapolating theory from it. And so instead of what we normally do is we start with, these, with a theory, which is just a set of assumptions. Uh, instead of starting with a theory and then gathering data and seeing how the data relates to the theory, they start instead, no theory at all, they start with the data, and then they try to develop a theory from it. And in this case, instead of a theory, they try to develop some guidelines, but they, they have some theoretical elements as well. We won't go into that as so much. So yes, then they point out that there's very few empirical studies that have been carried out to understand what kind of requirements people with visual impairments uh, would like in their games. Uh, they look at it, they point out to a couple of studies that have uh, really developed some innovative ways of, of approaching gaming accessibility. One uh, set of researchers uh, that they talk about uh, developed a glove that hmm. provided haptic responses for Guitar Hero. 
So instead like a of power glove, exactly, yeah. exactly. So instead of visually seeing the cues, you got the cues via yeah. haptics, and then you had to respond to those haptics. So I thought that was pretty cool. That would be something I would like to play myself. De- definitely, with. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of uh, sighted or not, that's amazing. And then some other researchers uh, developed things like audio puzzle games that allowed people with visual impairments to play the game. Uh, but it all comes down to is that uh, there's not really a whole lot of requirements. There's not a little whole lot of information that we have about people with disabilities who, uh, who want to game and who uh, are gamers. So they really used this game. Uh, they installed it on a, well, they it went really specific. They installed it on a Dell Inspiron 15 laptop. So that's some that's that's a great information there. Very necessary. I think so. <laughs> well, it's perfect transparency for so bravo to the writers Very for, good for making it so uh, so transparent. And they worked with a an, a disabled people's or disabled persons organization called the National Federation of the Blind mm-hmm. in the U.S. And they're located in Baltimore, Maryland, which is right near Towson, Maryland. So they did all the research there on site with them, and uh, yeah, and they did all the data collection there. So they really focused on people who self-identified as video gamers because they wanted to understand not only uh, just anybody's experiences using a game, but they wanted to specifically understand somebody who already considers themselves a gamer, who already has experience gaming, and then how can we make uh, the games more accessible for them. They had uh, basically two sets of surveys, one before and then one after they played the game. The survey before they played the game really asked questions about how long they had been a gamer, uh, what kinds of games they play, uh, what made them choose specific games, what do they like and dislike about their favorite games, what do they like and dislike about the games that they hate the least or they like the least, uh, what frustrates them about video games, and uh, what kind of sound cues do they use or what kind of sound cues do they want, uh, what kind of feedback would be helpful, and what sort of interactions do they have with the game. The questions they asked after the gaming were focused more on what were their expectations about the game, what kind of game were they kind of anticipating, what did they do to cope with playing the game, what kind of uh, techniques did they use, and what really enabled and impeded them to use the game and what would make the game easier for them. Again, they used this grounded theory method to kind of take the data, to take the interview data that they, uh, that they collected and understand a little bit better about uh, what sort of guidelines manufacturers would need or developers would need in order to ensure uh, an accessible gaming experience. So they used two, ke- co- uh, two techniques, one called open coding mm-hmm. and one called axial coding. Now, open coding basically means that you look at the interview, you read the interview, and then if anything jumps out at you, you kind of tag it with the, uh, the, the description of what the person is talking about. Mm-hmm. And then, so for example, if we were doing an interview and, and I was asking you questions about your experiences as a student, and you said, well, my experiences with this as a student are really awesome because I get to do stuff like be on a podcast, I could tag that part of the interview as podcasting is awesome for students or something along those lines. The second kind of uh, uh, analysis technique they use is called axial coding. And it basically takes those open codes that you already created and it creates some categories, creates some hierarchy between them. So it shows the relationship between maybe uh, podcasting is awesome to participating in, uh, you know, uh, faculty-student collaborations is a catalyst for being awesome experience yeah. or something along those lines. Sort of making like a code for the things that you see in, in the interview. Yes, exactly. It's creating a code and then creating like a meta code or a mm. code about the code. So it, uh, it provides some really interesting stuff. Now, they went into a lot of detail about those codes that they found and about the relationships between those codes. I'm not going to go into that as much. 
Uh, what I want to highlight is their, their main findings, which is their, the guidelines that they developed. And the guidelines focused on three things. They focused on navigation, uh, in-game effects, and identifying enemies. And so I think, you know, obviously these are things that are really, really important to any game. If you yeah. can't navigate, you're kind of screwed. If you, if you don't know what is happening in a game, you, you're kind of screwed. And if you can't uh, you know, identify an enemy in a mm. game, well, there's no point in playing it. Um, but I think their, their examples really give some interesting illustrations for the experiences that people with vision impairments have when they're playing games. So they talk first about navigation. Of course, a lot of times navigation on a computer, you map your certain keys to the up, down, left, right, diagonal mm. keys and that sort of thing. And that's all well and good for, for even for visually impaired gamers. But what the, the challenge that they, they expressed or the, the, the criteria that they've expressed that they would like to see gamers or game developers um, kind of adhere to or follow is to find ways of making ver enough variation so it's clear what button is, is what direction the person is going or what uh, movement, what action is being created. So for example, uh, creating footstep sounds that are different depending on the direction the person is going, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So if your character's moving forward, having footsteps downs found sounds one way, and if the character's going backwards, having footsteps downs in a different way. Mm -hmm. So that way it's very clear division on which direction the user's going simply by hearing the sound. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I mean, uh, that's something that I feel would be even fun for a sound designer to do because right. you get to be creative. You get to think in a different way, you know? It's sort of, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, I think so too. So the second criteria was in-game effects. So it's, it's pretty easy for, for sighted individuals to understand kind of what state their character is in the, in the game or what state the game is in. Um, whether that's kind of how many lives you have left or how much time you have to finish the, uh, a certain part of the game or what health level you're at and that sort of thing. But for people with vision impairments, it's not as easy. They, they experience a lot of barriers in this. Uh, and so what they suggested was to make sounds for these changing game conditions. So you could include, for example, a heartbeat mm -hmm. to represent how many lives you have remaining. Uh, you could have the sound of coins falling if you mm -hmm. collect money uh, or any kind of monetary gain. Or you could have the sound of brakes uh, if there was somebody screeching to a halt kind mm. of thing. And it, it reminds me of kind of some of the old games that I used to play as a kid. And these are kind of whenever you would turn a character around, you'd hear a very specific sound whenever yeah. they would turn around. And so I think in, in one ways it's an enriching experience for all gamers. But for people with vision impairments, it's absolutely essential for them yeah. to, to play, play it on an equal game, basis. Yeah. Okay, so the last aspect is identifying enemies. So, of course, being able to s play against an enemy and having some challenge in that experience is, is really part and parcel to any almost any game. Uh, again, for sighted people, it's, it's pretty easy to kind of understand what's happening, to weigh your options and what actions are kind of necessary for, for defeating your enemy. But for visually impaired gamers, it's a, it's a different story entirely. So th this information has to be accessible and usable for them. So they provide, again, a couple of examples. Uh, smaller enemies could be uh, indicated by a smaller sound. Mm. And of course, and they gave an example of a lion's roar. Mm. So you can have a small kind of if it's yeah. a, a very small enemy. And you could have a big, loud uh, you know, roar if it's a, if a larger enemy. Mm. Um, or if there's a specific set of weapons that you use to defeat a certain enemy, it could make a completely different sound than a different set of weapons. Hmm. Um, 
Yes, and if, uh, if a weapon hits its target, if you're successful in kind of uh, attacking your enemy, mm. then, uh, then it, may, would, it could make a different sound than if it missed, for example. Mm. And again, I think a lot of games kind of do this already as, by, by kind of just wanting to create an immersive experience yeah. for the gamer. But it's nice that, that these authors, these researchers went down and they said, no, this is more than just making it nice for, for some gamers. Mm. It's about accessibility for everyone. Yeah. And the difference is, is clear, you know, because sound design, it, it permeates, you know, the whole game. You know, everybody likes good sound design. All gamers, you know, they sit around and they're, you know, this soundtrack was great, amazing, you know. And, for example, when things are heating up in a fight, you know, you get, like, more rapid music and things are happening and then, you know, it dies down when it's down. But this isn't, yeah, like you said, it's not just about this cool factor. It's about these people will otherwise not be able to play the game. Hmm. Which I think, yeah, having a standard for that is amazing. Like, that's I, I agree, and it really provides, again, the, the aim of the article is to provide guidance for future yeah. game developers. Mm. So now game developers are going to be able to take these three, and even though there's only three criteria, they're at least a starting point now where we can say, okay, well, if we ensure that these three criteria are being adhered to, then we're, we're at least trying to make it more accessible. We're in the right direction. Exactly. We're going to the goal, basically. And uh, I... I wouldn't call myself a gamer. I do play games, but I live with a hardcore gamer and okay. some, somebody who, you know, has been doing this his entire life. And the the now games, games used to be more of just, you know, teenagers playing around. Now games are becoming so much more of an art form. Like there's a lot of indie games, indie mm. game developers that make games that may not even seem like a game in the beginning, something that's more geared towards a different audience than it used to be. And I feel like this is an amazing way to go, you know. Games uh, are not made for one specific type of person, you mm. know, the 20-year-old that's sitting at home and playing video games. It's mm. made for so many more different types of people. And it's not a child thing. It's like a childish thing as well now. Mm. Uh, and this is awesome because this makes games accessible, but also makes game developers and designers think in a completely different way. Yes. It would be amazing if you could make a game that was just based on sound, for example. Absolutely. That, that gives you such a challenge as well as a designer and a developer that you may have never had before, yeah. you know, and that makes you think outside of every single box that you've ever known, you know, <laughs> and it's amazing. I think it's, this is great, you know, and it's, it's amazing that they're, you know, setting guidelines and sort of going in that direction. So now more research can be done in this field as well. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. yeah, it's great. So we want to encourage all you out there who are doing game development or interested in game development to check out this article. Uh, tell me, tell us what you think about uh, about this kind of work. I, I, uh, I think it's clear our position on it is the way forward. Uh, it's also a really great opportunity to, as you said, build and create some new research. They didn't mention anything about limitations as far as mobile gaming. Because mm -hmm. I think about this, especially these kind of old school retro games, uh, a lot of them aren't being played on a computer, they're being no. played on mobile devices. Yeah. And so what happens when we translate uh, what we've been doing with a keyboard and mouse onto a mobile yeah. uh, haptic or Yeah, uh, haptics in general, any display. kind of re reaction, you know, vibrations with the game. I mean, that already exists as well, but it's not being, you know, used to its fullest potential. Absolutely. You know, when you die, like, it vibrates and you feel that. And, you know, all of these things, there's so much opportunity. And I feel like there it's is, great. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things also that we have such little experience. I, I think, when I say we, I think um, most people who don't uh, have interactions with people with visual impairments on a regular basis, they don't realize how quickly they can process audio information. Mm. 
you know, I work with people with visual impairments quite a bit, and if you ever watch somebody with a visual impairment use a screen reader, it's just, it, the first time is always so relevatory because, you know, you, they listen to text, uh, audio text, uh, at a rate that I can't process and yeah. understand, uh, and yet they're able to process, understand it, and know what action to take now. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this is almost a new way of interacting with uh, with software and with video games that uh, could be really, really engaging. Like you said, an audio only game, but that required you to kind of process information at very, very right? quickly, very, very fast speeds. Uh, that would be really fun. And that, yeah, and that kind of it would be fun for. Everyone, you, everybody could enjoy that and take part in that, and it would be stimulating to everyone. And I mean, that's kind of what a game is about. It's to stimulate, to kind of get you out of your comfort zone, maybe like do something else and, you know, kind of work towards a goal, right? And that could be done. That You don't need graphics to do that. You don't need, you know, sort of the, those standards that we've grown accustomed to to do that, I think. So if you have any thoughts or ideas for future podcast episodes, or if you have any suggestions about universal design that you'd like us to bring up on the podcast, uh, send us an email, please, at universaldesignpodcast at hioa.no. Again, that email is universaldesignpodcast, all one word, at hioa.no. Thank you so much for listening to the Universal Design Podcast. And we'll see you next time. Universal Design and the Information Society Podcast is brought to you by the Oslo and Akershus University College of Applied Sciences. With support from the Mozambique Norway Accessibility Partnership and funding by the Center of International Education in Norway.